0: And let's continue to worship God as we read His Word. Uh, so if you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. And then after we read... Uh, I was getting... Okay, uh, if you wouldn't mind standing as well as we read God's Word to show uh, respect for... Uh, reading of his word. Also, after we read, please keep it open for the sermon. Uh, We like to walk through the passage and take it slower and really open up what the passage is saying. So go ahead and read with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or it'll be up on the screen as well. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered him, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Lawrence. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open as Lawrence suggested. We'll be looking at this passage together. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, contains an ancient parable, not too dissimilar from what we just heard, about God's relationship with his covenant people. So Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that no rain rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. That ancient parable, so old, shows us a God who looks for fruit among his covenant people. The calling and expectation that they would walk in righteousness and justice before him in their relationship with him. And it reveals the consequences for what happens when they fail to bear that fruit, the the coming judgment of exile that Israel experienced, which is pretty portrayed there. But what's interesting is that this parable here in Isaiah also provides the background for our passage this morning in the Gospel of Matthew and the king who looks for fruit, the king who looks for fruit among his people. There are two key ideas that hold the four stories in our passage together. I don't know if you picked up in that longer reading that that Lawrence had for us, that there are four different stories in this section. And those four stories are held together by two ideas, by fruit and faith. Those are the two themes. So the first story begins with Jesus quite literally looking for fruit. He goes to the fig tree and finds none then curses that fig tree and then explains to his disciples the necessity of faith, fruit and faith. The last story in our section, contains a parable, again, very similar to Isaiah 5. And it's a picture of what's wrong with Israel's religious leaders, wherein this master plants a vineyard and then sends his servants to go and look for fruit. Like the fig tree, they find none. Instead, the tenants, the the leaders who were entrusted with the vineyard, withhold the fruit, and violently oppose the master's servants and ultimately kill his son. So it begins with no fruit. It ends with no fruit. And the two stories in between those help us understand where that lack of fruit comes from, from a lack of faith. Jesus exposes the leader's lack of faith during the the confrontation in verses 23 to 27, and then he illustrates that lack of faith in the parable of the two sons, which also takes place in a vineyard, so there's your fruit imagery, and explicitly charges those religious leaders for not believing, not having faith in John's message. Fruit and faith. God looks for fruit in his people. That requires faith. In God's king. So what would Christ find among us. If he were to walk in here today looking for fruit. What does he see right now from his throne in heaven. The king who looks for fruit among his people. Let's pray and look at this passage together. Gracious father as we open your word. It is your voice that we want to hear. And so we pray that your spirit would be with us to give us ears to hear, to give us eyes to behold you, to see you. And Lord, as always, we pray for hearts that are ready to be changed by the gospel of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So four stories that we're going to look at together, tied together with the themes of fruit and faith. The first story begins in verses 18 to 22. And Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem. So, last week Pastor Bruce walked us through the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he arrives and and makes clear that that he is this long-awaited king, that he really does have the authority of God's promised Messiah. And he exercises that authority by cleansing the temple. And So what we're going to see over the next few chapters is that the religious leaders of Israel, those who are currently in charge and entrusted with leading and overseeing Israel, uh, they do not like the claim that Jesus is making. Because if that's true, it means that they're no longer in charge. And so the next few chapters, we see this clash, this conflict between who's really in charge, who really has the authority To rule God's kingdom. To establish God's kingdom. And so he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He spent the night in Bethany. And he's heading back up there. But before he gets there. We have this curious story. Of Jesus cursing a fig tree. So verse 18. In the morning. As he was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside. He went to it. And found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Well that just seems harsh, doesn't it? You think about what what did that poor tree do to deserve this kind of condemnation? What's kind of funny is that among Jesus' miracles, uh, those who, who are relatively skeptical of the faith, this is one of the ones they latch onto and have a really hard time with. Uh, it's, it's become a common shtick among folks like Bertrand Russell or Christopher Hitchens that, to cite this story as an example of why Jesus is not quite the pillar of virtue everyone thinks he was. I mean, what kind of virtuous person would condemn a harmless tree? you know. But I think what we often fail to realize in our confusion about this kind of story is that Jesus didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. Uh, He wasn't grumpy. He wasn't impatient with his father for not providing breakfast fast enough, and so he curses the fig tree like a toddler throwing the cereal bowl or something like that. Jesus's actions here are a sign. They are a sign. Like the Prophets of the Old Testament who sometimes spoke their signs and sometimes acted them out. Or like a parable that instead of being spoken is acted out. So the cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable. It's a living parable. It's a sign pointing to something. To Israel's lack of fruit and the coming condemnation that will result from it. Israel is often depicted as a fruitless fig tree in the Old Testament among the prophets, or as a fruitless grapevine. That's a common metaphor. And so here Jesus enacts that metaphor. He he lives it out, pointing back to the fruitlessness of the temple In the previous passage where Jesus just cleansed it, but also pointing forward to the fruitless ministry of Israel's religious leaders. The people entrusted with a vineyard yet who failed to produce fruit. But what do we mean by fruit? What is it that Jesus is actually looking for when he looks at God's covenant people? Well, it's the same fruit that God was looking for back in Isaiah 5 the fruit that's fitting for his people, the kind of fruit that that those who are in a special covenant relationship with God ought to bear in their lives, and how they relate with God and how they relate with others, the fruit of righteousness and justice, of holiness and mercy and peace, the fruit of faithfulness and love, of obedience. As Isaiah 5-7 says, God looked for justice... That's the fruit he was looking for, but instead he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the fruit that God expects of his people, those who belong to him, those who are called by his name, is faithfulness to his word, obedience to his ways, which Jesus sums up at the end of the next chapter by basically saying, love for God and love for neighbor. That is the fruit God's people ought to bear in their lives as a result of their relationship with God. That's what we were made for. Clear back in Genesis 1, to be made in God's image is to be made for relationship with God, but also as a reflection of God's character and a representation of his kingdom. That's part of our created design, to bear fruit. It's what we were saved for. You think it's what Israel was saved for. You look back to Leviticus 11.45. It says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God rescued Israel from Egypt, that they would be holy as a reflection of his holiness, that they would bear fruit in their lives. It's the same reason Jesus saves us and brings God's salvation to completion for all nations. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.15. It says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's what we do apart from Christ. We live for ourselves. But he died for us, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died rescues us that our lives might be devoted to him, that they might bear fruit. Christ didn't die merely to rescue us from sin's penalty. He died to free us from sin's power. To free us from sin's power. He gave his life for us in order that he might change us. The fact that Jesus uses the imagery of fruit... Uh, in this story is telling. Uh, fruit is not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can fake. It's not superficial. Uh, you, you can't fake it like, you know, going to Super Saver or Stop and Shop and, and, and buying, you know, a box of figs and then kind of attaching them to a tree or something like that so you look good. You know, that's not going to last. The, the decaying process is well underway. So you can't fake it. You can't just trying to look good for God and perform for Him and go through the motions, nor can you create fruit out of your own hard work and resolve. You can't take a a dead stick and water it and fertilize it and and, and everything else and expect it to actually produce something that's not going to happen. Left to myself or left to ourselves as a church, we're no more capable of bearing fruit for God's kingdom then a dead stick and a pile of brush is capable of you know, becoming a, a fig tree or a vine. So the fruit that God is looking for, it's not something that we manufacture in and of ourselves out of our own effort or resolve. It's something that must come from the heart. It's something that comes from the inside. That's fruit. And if it isn't from the heart, it's not real fruit. But if there's no change in our lives, if there's no fruit, no repentance of sin, no growing love for God or neighbor, then we cannot presume that we actually belong to God and his kingdom. So obedience is not the basis of our salvation, but it is evidence of our salvation. A barren tree, a life that produces no fruit, that bears no evidence of God at work in our lives to change us, shows that there's no real relationship with God. And so, like the tree in our story, is under God's curse. If you're not connected to Christ, you remain under the curse of God's judgment. As Jesus says earlier in chapter 7 of Matthew, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or as he says in John chapter fifteen, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is the King, who's looking for fruit among God's people, and that fruit comes from an abiding relationship with Christ. We can't fake it. We can't make it up ourselves. It comes from an abiding relationship with Jesus, who is the true vine. In other words, fruit is a result of faith. Fruit comes from faith. That's why when Jesus is explaining the significance of having cursed the tree In verses 20 to 22, he then directs his disciples to the necessity of faith. So look with me at Matthew 21, verses 20 to 22. When the disciples saw it, what Jesus had just done, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So God's looking for fruit in our lives, but bearing fruit for God's kingdom requires faith in God's king. Bearing fruit for God's kingdom requires faith in in God's king. Notice the repetition in what Jesus just says there. If you have faith, and do not doubt, if you have faith, trusting in Christ. Obedience, again, it's not something that that we have the power to do in and of ourselves, any more than we have the power to move a mountain or, or, or do something like make a dead stick bear fruit. But God can do the impossible. So the power is his power, not ours. Faith is taking him seriously and trusting him to do what he says he will do. And one of the ways that our faith expresses itself is in prayer. If I do not pray much, that is evidence that I do not trust much. That's saying, basically, thanks God, but I got this one. That's what my lack of prayer says to the Lord And so we pray because we believe. We believe that God's the one who has to do that work. And we're utterly dependent on him. And and we pray for him to accomplish his kingdom purposes in us and through us that, that we would be used by him and for his glory. So if we want to bear fruit for God, we must trust in Christ. We must have faith in the king. Now there are some who come to these verses here, 20 to 22, And kind of disconnect them from the context of bearing fruit for God's kingdom. And then treat them like a blank check from God. Whatever I ask for. Whatever I want. All I have to do is believe. And God will give it to me. A new car. A successful business. Health. Wealth. Prosperity. And if I don't currently have those things, then the only explanation must be that I don't have enough faith. It's my fault. I just need to to try harder to believe. And if you don't have those things, if your son is sick, if if you've lost your job or you've fallen on difficult financial times, well, I guess we all know what that means. You don't have very much faith either. Because if you did, God wouldn't want this for you. It's your fault. We call this the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. And friends, it's from the pit of hell. It is an abuse of this passage in its context. But more than that, it's abusive to God's people. Because it lays on them the responsibility to be their own savior. It it, it ascribes power not to the object of faith, not to Jesus, but to the possessor of faith. So it, it makes us our own savior such that if life is going wrong, there's only one place to point the finger. There's no concept of, of a theology of suffering, of bearing our cross like Christ. There's no, uh, yeah, it, it, it is just wicked. And so anytime I see a passage that, that is, you know, talking about that, I want to make sure we understand that this is not what's happening there. The faith that God calls us to is a faith in what God can do. And we don't always see what God's going to do. We can pray and trust, and we need to trust and not doubt. But that doesn't mean we can presume upon God or demand things from him because we don't see the whole picture. God calls us to a real faith, but it's a faith in Christ. It's a faith that honors God as king, that doesn't replace his kingdom with my own. That's the goal of the prosperity gospel, to replace God's kingdom with my own kingdom. It's not what Christ is talking about here. There's only one king and savior in the gospel of Matthew and all of scripture, and it's not you, and it's not me, and it's not a lot of these people on TV. It's Jesus. We've got to get that straight, because if our faith isn't anchored in him, we're not going to bear fruit. We're not going to bear fruit for Christ. This is what Israel's religious leaders failed to understand. The necessity of faith in Christ, in God's king, in order to bear fruit. It's the reason that they find themselves under God's curse and condemnation as this story unfolds. They lack fruit for God's kingdom because they have no meaningful faith in God's King. Jesus exposes that lack of faith in verses 23 to 27. Look, look at those verses with me. So when Christ finally makes it to Jerusalem and he enters the temple, he begins teaching. Before long, he finds himself in this confrontation with the religious leaders and the chief priests and the elders. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven... And he's going to say to us, why did you not then believe? But if we say for man, we're afraid of the crowd because they all hold John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So The religious leaders cannot fathom the possibility that someone other than them is actually in charge. That God's Messiah has actually come. And so they want to know, by what authority is Jesus doing these things? The kind of teaching that he's doing. the, The cleansing of the temple. How dare he walk in and bring the temple operation to a halt? What gives him the right to do that? By what authority do you do these things? And they're not really interested in the answer. They simply want to catch him in his words and try and expose him for the fraud that they think he is. But that's a generally bad idea if the person you're trying to trick is God. And so Jesus takes their little veiled attempt and accusation and he turns it on them. He asks them a question that they must first answer, which not only allows him to avoid validating their accusation, but it also exposes the core of their problem, what's really wrong under the surface with these leaders their lack of faith. Look at their reasoning thought process in verse 25 again. They discussed among themselves, saying, if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? The problem was that they didn't believe. They didn't believe John's message. Clear before Jesus' own public ministry, John the Baptist went ahead of the Messiah to proclaim God's king is coming. To call Israel to repentance and and to warn the religious leaders of their lack of fruit. Look at how John puts it clear back in chapter 3. Keep your thumb in Matthew 21, but flip back to chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 with me. Listen to John the Baptist's Words to the religious leaders clear back here. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Subtle. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to, from these stones, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So already clear back in chapter 3, before Jesus has gone public with his ministry, God God is calling these religious leaders to repent and to bear fruit, to actually do what they're supposed to do as God's people. But they don't believe John. The ones who claim to follow God don't actually do it. Whereas others who had turned their back on God hear John's message, turn away from their sin and come to God in faith. That's what Jesus illustrates in verses 28 to 32 in the parable of two sons. Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. It's a very direct shot at the religious leaders. That's basically like saying to the Pope that pedophiles are entering the kingdom of God ahead of him. That's the religious contrast between these two figures, the tax collectors and and prostitutes versus the Pharisees. Because when the lowest of sinners heard John, they repented and believed. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't. They remained a fruitless tree, a barren tree, vineyard because they refused to trust in Jesus as king. And for that reason, they will be cut off. The kingdom will be taken out of their charge and given to a new covenant people who are united in Christ, who through faith in Christ will actually be able to bear the fruit God is looking for. Jesus illustrates and applies that in the last story in our passage, the parable of the vineyard. So look at verse 33 with me. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So the master is looking for fruit. What does he find? The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another, and again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, you read this story, and you hear Isaiah 5, and you hear the Old Testament prophets in the background, the the parallels between what Jesus is saying here and Israel's story are unmistakable. Here is the vineyard of Israel, the same vineyard as in Isaiah 5, and the tenants are the religious leaders. The servants are God's prophets coming to them, calling them to repentance, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, just like John the Baptist did. And they do to the prophets... What Israel did to the prophets in the Old Testament so often. Beating them, killing them, stoning them. What they ultimately did to John the Baptist. And, and Jesus in the Father, the Master's you know, passion to recover his vineyard and to call it to repentance culminates in sending his son. So the parallels are unmistakable. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Religious leaders said, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in their seasons. So the religious leaders recognize the obvious injustice of this story. They even know what justice should look like, that the, that the wicked tenants need to, be, we need to receive retribution, that, the, that the, the vineyard, the kingdom, needs to be revoked from them and then reassigned to different tenants who are actually going to be faithful. They know what the solution is. What they might not yet realize is that they are those tenants. And so Jesus makes it clear verses 42 to 46, says to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They got the point. The sad thing is, instead of repenting, verse 46, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They just start fulfilling the parable instead of repenting. You cannot bear fruit for God's kingdom apart from faith in God's king. It doesn't matter how religious you are. doesn't matter how often you go to church, how genuinely you hold your beliefs. If those beliefs are not anchored and fully dependent in Christ, there can be no fruit. Israel's religious leaders tried this. They rejected God's king. But the stone that the builders looked at and said, and rejected, that's actually the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And not only is it the cornerstone from which God will build his kingdom, it's also the stone of judgment for those who reject the king. But even as as God's reign's taken away from the fruitless leaders, notice how, that doesn't mean that the story comes collapsing in on itself. It doesn't mean that everything God's been working on and planning from before creation and unfolding throughout the Old Testament, it was all just a wash now because these guys blew it. Instead, that kingdom is going to be given to a new people, a people who come from both Jew and Gentile, who are united in their King and Savior, Jesus. God, God's not wiping his hands of Israel He's fulfilling his promises to them through their king. Jesus is true Israel. He is the vine that Israel failed to be through whom we can actually bear fruit for God. That is the hope of the gospel. That because Jesus succeeds where Israel failed and where we fail and where all of humanity fails and because he willingly let His enemies take his life and kill him in order to bear their own sin and rescue them from it. Because Jesus did these things, and is this thing, we can be saved through faith in him. And that hope is not just for for Israel, that hope is for all nations. That's one of the trajectories of Matthew's gospel. This message is going to go to the ends of the earth. If we will trust and follow Christ, we can be rescued from the kingdom of self and the barren, lifeless uh, just emptiness that comes from always serving self and never being satisfied. We can be rescued from that and the judgment that comes with it and instead be reconciled to the Father and able to do what God made us to do, to bear fruit for his kingdom. our lives will never be satisfied until they're satisfied in Christ. All the things we spend chasing, all of the empty fruit that we feed ourselves, that we gorge ourselves on, our lives will never be satisfied until they're satisfied in Christ. So where are we in this story? What would Christ find among us if he were to show up here looking for fruit? What does he see right now from his throne in heaven? For many of us, that's an uncomfortable question to think about. Because if we're honest, we don't always like what we know God sees. We spend an awful lot of our time and energy trying to cover that up so that other people won't see it. But I want to encourage us to let The weight of that uncomfortable question hang on us a bit this morning. What is it that Christ would find if he were to show up looking for fruit in my heart, in your heart, looking for fruit in this congregation called Westgate? Because it's only by exposing the lack of fruit that we're able to be drawn deeper still into the gospel that actually produces that fruit. It's by seeing the barrenness in our hearts that we're actually able to then go to the vine that's able to produce that in us. And if we're not honest about that, if we don't let God look honestly at us, we're going to deprive ourselves of what he wants to do. And so for those of us who look at our lives and think, you know, God would be pretty proud of this right here. You know, things are good. I'm obeying God. I'm keeping God's commands. Uh, And and we, we we have this bountiful cornucopia of obedience flowing from our lives. To the extent that that's true, praise God for his grace. Because it's only God's grace that enables us to bear that fruit. And keep depending on God's grace. Because even our best offerings of obedience to God, because of the fallen world that we live in, because of our fallen hearts that are not yet made perfect in God's presence in heaven, our best acts of obedience are still somehow stained with sin. What makes them acceptable to Christ is that they are sanctified by his blood for us. So, Praise God for his grace. Keep depending on God's grace. Do not take for granted God's grace. In your confidence, don't let yourself become like the second son who says, yeah, I do that, but then doesn't. For those of us who look at our lives and see no fruit at all, no real obedience from the heart, no evidence of change, no difference between how you live and how the world lives, then you need to ask the uncomfortable question, am I really a Christian? Have I really recognized my sin and turned away from it and trusted in Christ? Because if there's no fruit, then then you have to ask, is the vine really connected? Am I really depending and trusting in him? Perhaps what you see when you look is so shameful that you can't even imagine that God could forgive that. You, have, you feel like you have no choice but just to hide it from him. If that's you, be like the first son who said he wouldn't go, but then did. He got a rough start wandering away from the Lord, but when he heard the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ, turned from his sin and he followed him. Be like that, son. For those of us who see fruit and yet also see some barrenness, there's some parts of our lives that are pretty empty. Ongoing sin, bitterness, pride, anger, lust, greed, sexual immorality, anything that's unbecoming of God's covenant people Ask yourself, so what is it I'm not believing about God? Bearing fruit for God's kingdom requires faith in God's king. So what about God am I doubting and not believing such that I am moving away from him in this area of my life instead of toward him? What am I trusting in instead of him in that corner of my heart? Am I struggling with bitterness? Do I really believe that the same blood that covers my sin is able to cover the sins committed against me as well? If I really believe that, would bitterness have such a grip on my life? Am I struggling with image and identity? Do I really believe that I am created in God's Image and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, such that when God looks at me, his heart is filled with love and delight and joy. Do I believe that? Am I struggling with anxiety? Do I really believe that the one who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the flowers of the field cares more about me than them? That he's sovereign and good, such that I can trust him even when life doesn't make sense? Do I really believe that about God? And if I believe that, what would that do to my anxious heart? And we can ask those questions as a congregation as well. Where are we as Westgate barren, empty, or or just immature in our fruit? What are we not believing about God? You know, are we struggling with our witness to Christ, with motivation for that, or with energy for that, or, or, or whatever? Do I really believe that Christ is present with us by the Spirit, that he has redeemed us and placed us in the Metro West for a purpose, to make disciples of all nations, and that he will be with us to the very end of the age? He's not going anywhere. Do I really believe that when I'm trying to share the gospel with someone that Christ shows up and he's the one doing the heavy lifting. He's doing the work. What confidence does that give to our hearts? Do we really believe that there will come a day when the lamb will receive the prize of his suffering? That Christ will stand in the end surrounded by a multitude from every tribe and people and language worshiping Him and crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Do I, is my heart captivated with that vision? Do I cling to that with that hope of celebrating with Him in the wedding supper of the Lamb in the end? That that's our inheritance. Does that move us and motivate us to make disciples for Christ? Fruit comes from faith. Where am I doubting God? Where are we doubting God? Where are we not applying the gospel of Jesus to our lives? And the disciples marveled at Jesus's sign cursing the fig tree. But we read in the last story what's so marvelous about our salvation and the fruit that comes from it is that it's not something we manufacture. It's a gift this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Do we really believe that? This morning we are going to marvel together in that truth through the Lord's table. Through communion. So, like the, the withering of the tree, communion is a kind of sign. Not in the miraculous sense, but a sign in that it points us to something bigger than itself. It points us back to the cross of Christ. Where he gave his life for sinners and rebels. Like me and like you. And so it is that the bread that we eat. Is a sign pointing to Christ's body. The cup of drink is a sign pointing to Christ's blood shed for us. And and even as we look back to What Christ has done, it lifts our hearts and points us forward to what he will yet do when he returns. And that meal he will share with his followers, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when when his enemies have finally and fully been put under his feet, when death and sin and sorrow will be no more. So we look back, we look forward. Ultimately, we look to the gospel of our hope. We look to Christ. The heart of of our faith so if you're a christian if jesus is your king and your savior he is your hope you're part of his family then this meal is for you and i invite you this morning to share in it with us to celebrate the grace that we have in christ to share in it with joy and to share in it with repentance in a moment, I'm going to give us all an opportunity to pray quietly and to ask ourselves those uncomfortable questions. God, what fruit do you see in my life, and where is it lacking? And I want us to listen to the Lord as we pray. But, but where the Lord exposes any barrenness, take that opportunity not to, not to beat yourself up. What a bad Christian I am take that opportunity to turn away from it and to cling to God's sufficient grace in Christ. Yeah, we're all kind of bad Christians when it comes down to it, but we have a very good Savior, and he loves us, and his grace is sufficient, and he can change our lives. And so, so as we reflect on this, reflect with repentance and partake with hope. We have the grace of Christ. It is sufficient. If you're not a Christian, if, if you do not trust Christ as your Savior, or you're, you're not even sure what that exactly means, then I invite you just to let the cup and the bread pass this morning. This is a family meal for those who, who, who follow Christ as King. Uh, and yet I do suggest and, and encourage you in that time of prayer to ask God those same questions, to expose your heart, and to show himself to you to show himself, to remind you of what he's done for you to rescue you. And so instead of taking the sign that points to Christ, take hold of Christ in faith this morning. So as the ushers collect themselves and come forward, we're going to have a time of of quiet prayer together, and then we're going to celebrate the good news of Christ through the Lord's table. Gracious Father, we confess that we do not always trust you. We confess that we live parts of our lives in fear, fear of losing something that we do trust, that we do depend on, that we do hope in. Lord, thank you that despite our unfaithfulness, you have remained faithful, and will continue to be faithful to your plan, to your promises, to your people. And thank you that you have proven that faithfulness and shown your love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that you did not come to us and say, this is a mess, clean it up, and when you're done, I might come back and accept you. Rather, you came and you took our mess on yourself that you might clean us with the blood of your Son. We praise you for that, God. And Lord, may that grace well up in our hearts now, giving us the strength by your Spirit to put away sin, to grow, to to take one more step toward you than we've taken yesterday. And Lord, may we rejoice that your grace is ever sufficient and ever present for us. That's what we celebrate with this table. We pray that you would be honored. That you would receive the glory due your name. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen.